This is Beyond Reading the Bible, where we connect you with the living Word. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Reading the Bible. My name is Lindsay Kennedy. And my name is Randy McCracken. So Randy, in this episode, we're going to be discussing the topic of typology. Could you explain to us what that means and why it's relevant? Yeah, typology. Well, let, let me give a, a personal experience first, Lindsay. When I was younger, uh, I was made aware that the writers of the New Testament use this thing that's called typology. Uh, but outside of a couple of New Testament passages, or I should say a few New Testament passages, I was very leery uh, of this whole method of approaching Scripture. If you would hear people talking about, well, this is a type of this and this is a type of that. Mm. And some of our listeners may be saying, I don't even know what a type is. So we'll be explaining that shortly. But one of the things uh, I've learned as I continue to study the Scripture that typology is not only a very valid way to approach Scripture, it's really quite revealing uh, and you can gain a lot of insight once you understand uh, what typology is and how to recognize it in the Bible. I'm just going to start with a basic definition, and I'm going to go back and actually give an example from modern times that doesn't even relate to Scripture. Basically, typology means that earlier characters and events are understood as figures of later characters and events, and that the text is written in a way to bring out this connection. Now, this is something uh, that theologian Peter Leithart has said in the way he has defined typology, and I think it's a good way of doing it. Basically, uh, it's saying that biblical authors, they frequently use descriptions or actions or words or describe circumstances of a character or a certain situation that reminds the reader of something else that they've previously read in the Bible. Right, so this is similar to our previous episode on chiasms, really, where this is another example of artistry that the biblical authors are employing. Really, like, like any work of great literature, you're going to have foreshadowing. This is something similar to that, isn't it? Yeah, foreshadowing is a good way to express it. Just to give our, our listeners a modern-day example that this isn't just confined to the Bible, uh, but that we can actually encounter it today. I've been listening a lot to the um, Democratic and Republican conventions and everything that's been in the news in the American media about that. And one of the things I heard during the recent political conventions, uh, those who happened to favor Donald Trump were comparing his policies to Ronald Reagan. While on the other hand, the Democrats bristled at that, and there were actually some that disliked Trump so much, they tried to compare him and his policies with Adolf Hitler. Well, <laughs> it's quite <laughs> a difference. Yeah, without getting into politics too much, I think the Hitler comparison is a bit extreme. But the point in, in all of this is, is we have a typology. People are, are comparing Trump either to someone that they revere, like Reagan, uh, and his policies are someone they abhor, like Hitler. And they're trying to draw comparisons between the people themselves uh, and between their actions and their policies. That's, in a nutshell, what typology is. Right. It's interesting because 
by doing this, we're causing our, our listeners or readers to, to draw on a sort of a shared knowledge or a shared opinion of something, aren't we? By saying the comparison with Hitler or Reagan, we're, we're trying to make, call it, give a judgment on the present person in light of something in the past that we should already share an opinion about. So we, we all agree that Reagan was good, let's say, or we all agree that Hitler was bad. And by applying that typology to this present person, we're trying to draw that connection and, and say, pull over all these opinions they had about this person and, and apply them to, to this new example. That's exactly it. And uh, as we look through the scripture, we're going to find that uh, that's quite a common thing that takes place. And in my opinion, uh, the reason typology is such a great weapon, if you will, to have in your arsenal of Bible study is because it actually allows Scripture to interpret Scripture. Uh, it's not just your opinion, but you're seeing um, things that the biblical authors are saying, and they're, they're explicitly referring to things that have happened earlier and wanting you to tie those stories together uh, and learn something uh, about the present person or event that they're speaking about. And so to me, it's, it's a very strong way of, of hearing what the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate through the biblical authors. Where do we even get the words type or antitype? Where do we get this terminology from? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, because those words to us might seem kind of strange. Actually, they're, they're nothing but the Greek words themselves being brought over into the English language. The Greek word is tupos for type and antitupos for antitype. And uh, the basic definition of tupos or type in Greek is something that's created by pressure or by a blow, like a seal on wax, uh, like a, a dye on metal. And other words that communicate the idea of type is something that is a copy or a pattern or an image or an example. So this is what the word means. This is where it comes from. And so when we speak of types and antitypes, we're just simply borrowing the, the Greek words and bringing them over into English. So, Lindsay, the, the type is um, the individual or event or whatever it might be from the past, and the antitype would be the present person, situation, or event. Right, so the type would be like the shadow, and the antitype would be the fulfillment or the reality. That's right. Good way of putting it. You're saying that we see this in the Bible. This comes from Greek usage. What sort of examples do we have in Scripture? Of the actual word? Well, here are a few that particularly go along with <clears throat> what we're seeking to communicate uh, to our listeners. Now, the word type is is used a number of times in the New Testament, and oftentimes it just means something like example or pattern. Uh, but when it's specifically referring to this idea of uh, a present situation that is um, has been foreshadowed in the past, or a, a present person who is foreshadowed in the past, some examples of that uh, tupos is used, for instance, in Romans 5, 14, where Adam is said to be a type of Christ. First uh, Corinthians 10, 6 uh, uses this language. And here Jesus is, is referred to as the rock that Israel drank from. Um, and then Hebrews 8, 5 is, is usually a pretty well-known one to people who study uh, the New Testament. 
And a couple examples of, of anti-type, and there's really only two in the New Testament, uh, come from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, and then 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Right, so even though the terminology only appears a few times in the Bible, the ideas running behind this terminology is something that we find just scattered all throughout the Bible. Would you agree? Yeah, I do agree. And um, this this goes back again to when I was younger. I, I used to think, well, something is only a type or an anti-type if the author specifically uses those words. Uh, but I became aware in my study that that's far from true. The author doesn't have to use those words uh, to be using this method of uh, interpretation. That makes sense. I mean, it. it's just like today, the way that we speak, we, you and I just know when I'm shifting into a, a matter of speaking or an idiom or it just is natural. I don't, usually have to point that out and oh now i'm speaking metaphorically it's just, it's just so clear exactly so something else about types that's worth mentioning is the type and the anti-type could be a person um, such as david let's say that david there are some similarities between david and jesus and then you've got other things like events so the exodus for example is it's such an important moment in israel's history that you see it repeated again and again as an example that the, the biblical authors will draw from and say, I'm talking about this future salvation. I'm going to be using the language of the Exodus to describe this future act of salvation. And that's where we get this idea of the new Exodus. And then a third type could be institutions. So it's not just a person or a historical event, but it's an institution, one of the most obvious being the Levitical system, you know, particularly Levitical sacrifices the sacrifices you find in the Old Testament, that they have symbolic value to them. They have some sort of foreshadowing realities that will come to fulfillment in Jesus. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I think it's really important to keep uh, that mindset that uh, typology can involve all of these different areas. Yeah, another thing, of course, as well, is when we're saying that we find correspondence between persons, events, institutions, Really, these things require that there is a God, really, that, that this God is sovereign and he, is, he orchestrates history because it's, we're not just simply pointing out uh, correspondences in history like, oh, look, this reminds me of this. It just happens to be you know, coincidentally similar. But really, typology is grounded in God's character and his consistency, that when he saves the people of Israel one way, that he's going to save in a similar way again. That's right. And I think it's important that that we establish, as you're saying, that there are some ground rules because any method of interpretation can just go wild. And uh, if there's no boundaries, if there's no foundational values that, that ground it, uh, you can go crazy with uh, an interpretation and, and make certain things mean things that... Uh, that the Holy Spirit and the biblical authors never meant for them to mean. Our listeners are probably chomping at the bit for us to get to some more concrete examples, Lindsay. But before we do, uh, I think it's important that we pause for a moment and describe what typology is not. And uh, why don't you just go ahead and share with our listeners uh, some of your insights on that? Yeah. So two things that typology is not. The first is that it is not allegory. And the second is that it's not 
prophecy, right? These things are to be distinguished from typology. So the first, for example, allegory, when many times I think when you hear the word typology, and I think this is what you ran into, Randy, is often you can think this is talking about allegory. Right? This is talking about connections between two things that really have no real correspondence, or the correspondence is one that's purely in speculative or too vague. Allegory really assigns a so-called deeper meaning to stories. This so-called story in the Bible, this is really not what it's about. It's about something else. And this other thing that it's about is often often has no real connection to the story and has no real connection to the intent of the author when they're writing the story. And often it's it comes through a, sort of an anachronistic reading where we read New Testament truths into an Old Testament passage that are really just simply not there. There's not really a big interest in the historical event per se, while within typology, the historicity of an event is very important. It's a very big difference that for typology, the fact that this truly did happen, that's fundamental to the type. Can you give me an example of what you're talking about? Maybe some uh, some use of allegory that, that would differ from what we're talking about when it comes to typology. One example would be Augustine, the way that he read David the Bathsheba's story. Uh, he wasn't happy with the idea that David could have actually sinned in this event. It just didn't make sense to him. And so he, he thought, well, maybe this is an allegory. The story is an allegory of something else. So with his reading, he saw Bathsheba actually as a symbol of the church and Uriah as a symbol of Satan. So Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, is a symbol of Satan. Well, if, if that's the case, then David coming along, he's actually freeing the church from Satan. So he's like Christ. And so suddenly it's spun into a positive story because we couldn't possibly have David being a bad guy, right? Right. So it takes it totally away from um, what the story really communicates. And uh, we want to make clear that we're not doing that with typology. In fact, typology has very distinct elements, doesn't it? Uh, it has the historicity that you've mentioned. Uh, it has a, a, a valid correspondence and um, typology accomplishes different things. Sometimes it, it escalates. Uh, sometimes it brings contrast. Sometimes it validates. And uh, we'll give various examples of, of that. Uh, what about typology and prophecy? What's the difference there, Lindsay? Right. Well, prophecy, at least the way we're using the term, is really a direct prediction. Right? Prophecy, obviously is not just predicting the future, but the way I'm speaking of it right now is the idea of a prediction of something that will happen. Typology is not prophecy in that same sense. You could actually call it indirect prophecy because it does foreshadow greater things, but it's not an outright prediction. So I know that, that you've done a lot of work in 1 and 2 Samuel and that you've got some really good examples of, of sort of deeper typology going on here. So I'm really looking forward to what you have to share. Yeah, thanks, Lindsay. Um, I've uh, written a book a few years ago entitled Family Portraits, Character Studies in First and Second Samuel. And one of the challenges in doing a character study is what if you have a character that there's not a lot of information on, uh, but you want to mine everything that the scripture uh, can possibly say about that individual. Uh, and I learned as I wrote the book that uh, there was actually a lot of value in typology and that as you read about certain incidents or certain people in the scripture, it would remind you uh, of other incidents and people in the scripture. And when you did that 
typological comparison, you could actually learn quite a bit. Now, one example uh, that I want to share first is uh, the uh, example of Abigail, whose story is found in 1 Samuel 25, and Bathsheba, who was introduced in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And I really want to focus on Bathsheba. <clears throat> the interesting thing about Bathsheba, as you read through the story, there's really not a ton of information about her in the story. The story is more focused on David and his sin. But of course, Bathsheba is a very, very important uh, character in the story. Uh, scholars who've studied this story come up with all sorts of different conclusions about the kind of woman that Bathsheba was. Some would say that she was very cunning and that she placed herself purposely uh, in a position where David would be able to view her. Uh, some would say that uh, she wanted to trap David into marrying her so that she could get into the palace. Uh, others would say, no, she was very naive. She just happened to be bathing and, and David happened to see her. Uh, and so you can go back and forth reading various commentaries and uh, scholarly articles about Bathsheba and come up with all sorts of different opinions. So one of the things that uh, challenged me was, okay, how, how am I going to get to the bottom of what this character is really like? And, and as I began to uh, study the story, one of the things that I saw pretty clearly was that uh, not only with Bathsheba, but with other characters in First uh, and Second Samuel, that they recalled qualities and uh, incidents from other stories in Scripture. Uh, one of the interesting parallels between Bathsheba and Abigail, uh, actually not one, they have a lot of things in common, and people might not realize that when they're first reading uh, those stories. But, for example... Both women were married to husbands who die before they become David's wives. So uh, that's a common uh, tie between them. When we look at Abigail and Bathsheba, we actually learn here that, that the typology uh, is creating a contrast. And it's showing us that there are qualities in Abigail that Bathsheba lacks. For instance, uh, Abigail's husband, his life is threatened. In 1 Samuel 25, it's actually threatened by David because of the way her husband Nabal uh, treats David. But Abigail acts to save her husband from death. So that's an interesting contrast because Bathsheba's act leads to her husband's death. Uh, another thing is that Abigail convinces David not to shed innocent blood. But David sheds innocent blood by killing Uriah in 2 Samuel 11. Uh, Nabal is, is said to be an evil individual, Abigail's husband, whereas Uriah is pictured as a loyal and faithful servant. Nabal refuses to take from his abundant flocks and share food with David. And in the story of the parable of Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan compares David to a rich man who refuses to take from his abundant flocks. So there are ideas uh, that parallel these stories. There are interesting contrasts when we look at them. And then one of the things that really struck me, Lindsay, as I began to 
compare these stories more closely is that there are a, a lot of verbal similarities. So how do you know a typology is really taking place? Well, number one, you, you want to see that there's some commonality uh, in the stories. But number two, if, if you've got a lot of verbal similarities, to me, that really helps nail it down. And uh, in my book, I, I put up a chart on one of the pages that shows all of the verbal correspondences between the two. There are things like in both stories, David sends and inquires. In both stories, David sends messengers. In both stories, we're told that David takes. Uh, we're told that Nabal is evil in his doings and that David does evil. Uh, the word peace is used three times in both stories in the same verse. Uh, the expression to wash the feet is only found two places in First and Second Samuel. One is in the story of Abigail. The other is in the story of David and Bathsheba. So uh, there are many others, too, that I don't want to bore our readers with uh, right now. But when you begin to see all of these verbal correspondences, along with the other things that I've mentioned, you can be pretty sure that the, that the biblical author is saying, hey, I want you to go back uh, now that you've read the story of Bathsheba, and I want you to reread the story of Abigail, and I want you to compare them. How is Bathsheba either like or unlike Abigail? And by doing that, uh, it began to help me form a character portrait of Bathsheba. So I learned as much from the Abigail story, maybe even more by the comparison, than I did by simply reading the story in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 about Bathsheba. Wow, yeah, there's a lot there, isn't there? I think what you've just pointed out there, especially at the end with the verbal similarities, that really is an important way of knowing if typology is taking place, that the author indicates it through repeated words, phrases, especially, like you said, washing the feet. That's a very unique instance that only happens twice. That's right. And one of the interesting things is, is this um, typology happens within the same book. First and Second Samuel, of course, is really one book when it was written. Uh, but sometimes we can see typology across various books, as we've already illustrated, the, the New Testament writers drawing on things from the Old Testament. Matthew sees connections between Jesus and Moses. Once you see it, it's really hard to deny it. So what we find, we find some real similarities in the way that Matthew portrays Jesus. Now, of course, he's portraying this as history. This is true history. But he's telling a story in such a way and arranging his gospel in such a way that we would see these connections between the events of Moses' life. So when it comes to Moses, we all know that, that Pharaoh was trying to kill the children, the Israelite children. We also find the same thing when it comes to Jesus. Herod was trying to kill Israelite children, only a particular set of them in, in Jesus' town, but there is that similarity. Moses, early on in his life, he flees from Egypt with Jesus, his family flees to Egypt. Moses, when he hears that he's, the danger has passed, he returns to Egypt. With Jesus, when Joseph and Mary hear that the danger has passed, they return to Israel. In fact, you could even see a hint of the Exodus there. They're returning to the Promised Land. In fact, the, there's verbal connections between these two that make it even more clear. So in Exodus 4.19, it's told to Moses from the Lord, Go back to Egypt, 
for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. In Matthew 2.20, Joseph is told, go to the land of Israel, for one who sought the child's life are dead. So again, there's this connection. It makes it quite clear that these parallels are there. Now Moses, of course, after the event of the plagues on Egypt, the waters are split and he leads them through. Jesus is also goes through the waters, the waters of baptism. So with Moses, as he leads Israel through the, wil through the waters, we then have 40 years of wilderness wandering. With Jesus, after his baptism, he immediately goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Not only that, but as he's in the wilderness, he responds to Satan's temptations by quoting Old Testament, by quoting passages that come from Israel's time of wandering in the wilderness. So unlike Israel, he's a faithful son. Then later on in the story, Moses appoints elders to help him rule, while Jesus appoints apostles. Moses, after this, receives the law. He goes up the Mount Sinai and receives the law, while Jesus, in Matthew 5 through 7, he goes up the Mount in Jerusalem and he gives the law. He, he repeats many commands that are found in the law, but then he says, I say to you. So instead of Moses, who is passing on the words of God, Jesus is saying, I say to you. He's speaking as if he were God giving the law. And so he even amplifies the law by saying, you know, the law has always been about what's in the heart. So it's it's quite clear when you compare these stories, especially when you notice that they line up. Uh, this is not just me putting them in this order, but this is actually the order that both stories present these events. When you see that they line up, you see, okay, this is intentional on the part of Matthew here. So he's trying to give this portrayal of Jesus as being a new, greater Moses. And uh, the next example I have, Lindsay, uh, is actually in the very next chapter, in 2 Samuel chapter 13. And it's the story of David's son and daughter, Amnon and Tamar, and his vicious rape and committing of incest with her. Uh, the, there are actually a number of stories that the uh, inspired writer draws on. I just want to focus on one, and this takes us actually back to the book of Genesis. Uh, there's a story in Genesis 34 where the patriarch Jacob has a young daughter by the name of Dinah or Dina, and this story is found in Genesis 34. Dinah goes out to hang out with the inhabitants of the land, and a man by the name of Shechem sees her, takes her, and rapes her, uh, and then brings her into his house. And there's negotiations that go on between Jacob's sons and Shechem, and eventually Shechem and his, uh, uh, his entire town is wiped out by Jacob's sons. Now, there are, again, uh, a lot of similarities between the story in 2 Samuel 13 and Genesis 34. First of all, both Amnon and Shechem are sons of kings or leaders of their people. Both rape a woman. Um, both stories use a lot of similar language. For instance, the words fool folly, and the expression, a thing that should not be done in Israel, is found in both stories. Uh, there are some contrasts, though, between the story of Shechem and Dinah and Amnon and Tamar. For instance, Shechem speaks kindly to Dinah 
and he desires to marry her, whereas Amnon throws his sister Tamar out and refuses to marry her. There's some other interesting contrasts between the story of Amnon and Tamar with another story in Genesis, and that's the story of Joseph. Uh, Amnon is actually contrasted with Joseph. Only these two stories, the story of Joseph and the story of Amnon, speak of a royal garment, or as we're familiar with it, a coat of many colors. Um, David's daughter wears it in 2 Samuel 13, and of course Joseph is said to wear one back in Genesis 37. Interestingly enough, Amnon and Joseph both use this same sentence, have everyone go out from me. Genesis 45.1, Joseph says it. 2 Samuel 13.9, Amnon says it. Now, when you compare the contexts of the story, you can see that the reason Joseph is saying, have everyone go out from me, is he wants to reveal himself to his brothers, a good thing. Whereas when Amnon says it, he's wanting to get his servants out of the house so that he can rape his sister. So by looking at these typological similarities, we begin to see that Amnon is being painted as an extremely wicked individual, even more wicked than, say, Shechem is in Genesis 34. And he's certainly not a good guy, but Amnon uh, is being painted as even being worse. Uh, there are other uh, verbal similarities between the Joseph story and Amnon. The words love and hate occur in both of these stories. Potiphar's wife uses the expression when she speaks to Joseph, lie with me. Very th same expression that Amnon uses. So when you start to see these, these typological comparisons, um, right away we, we can enhance our understanding of the characters of both Amnon and Tamar. We can see how they're like and also unlike other individuals in Scripture. And through that, uh, we can begin to draw uh, a, a character evaluation. One connection that just leaps to mind for me is just seeing how, of course, Amnon is an Israelite and he's a son of David. So for him to be repeating the sins of Shechem, who was not an Israelite, this is very serious, isn't it? It's This is one of God's own people. That's right. And so it actually shows how a son of David is more wicked than a wicked Canaanite was. So it's an extremely bad commentary on who Amnon was as a person. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of Beyond Reading the Bible. I just want to encourage our listeners to just read deeper to read with fresh eyes. I know that this episode has encouraged me to, to read in such a way where I notice these parallels and want to see more and more of them that the scripture really has there. So I encourage our listeners to do the same. Pick up your Bible and read it. And then come back for another episode. <laughs> and if you've enjoyed our podcast, I encourage you to check out our website as we have... For each episode, we have recommended books, resources, links, some of which are free, some of which can be purchased. Uh, in this episode, we have a link to Randy's book, which I highly recommend. And also, if you enjoy the show, please give us a positive review on iTunes, in the iTunes store. Every review would make a huge difference to us. Uh, if you have any feedback, whether questions, comments, or suggestions, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you.
You can do that through a comment or even just through the contact section of our website. So thanks for listening as always. Join us again soon for another episode of Beyond Reading the Bible. 